Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello and welcome to Resolve Asset Management's Gestalt University podcast. This is Adam Butler, Chief Investment Officer at Resolve. Today, I interview Lars Kessner, a Managing Director at a European Investment Bank. Over his 20-plus year career on Wall Street, he has led teams that have managed derivative risk across a vast range of market environments. He's also the author of Quantitative Trading Strategies, a cutting-edge text on systematic trading that's 15 years old now. Lars designed and employed his first systematic trading system to trade 30-year bond futures before entering college. Today, we discuss two papers that Lars released on his website, satquant.com, in the last few weeks. First, his paper, Preferred Portfolios, describes a novel framework for assembling strategies with wildly different characteristics into a coherent and resilient portfolio. We discuss how to sort strategies into boosters, defenders, diversifiers, and selectors based on a novel quantitative method, the theoretical limits of diversification, and aligning strategy composition with investor psychology and goals to minimize the potential for abandonment along the way. We also discuss a brand new paper called Replicating CTA Positioning, an Improved Method, which proposes a technique to peer into current CTA portfolio positioning. This is of potentially pretty high value because CTA trend followers are often the marginal buyer in markets at certain inflection points. So the ability to identify concentrated risk positioning and or potential turning points may offer investors a unique edge. Lars is clearly passionate about using quantitative methods to maximize investment results in the real world, and he offers a variety of valuable nuggets for the perceptive listener. Please enjoy my conversation with Lars Kessner. All right, today we've got Lars Kessner. Lars, we're going to talk a lot about how portfolio assembly and diversification, and you know, you're working on a draft version of a really neat new paper but it's going to be relatively heavy quant. So I think you should go ahead and give our viewers and listeners a sense of your background and why you are well qualified to weigh in on some of these topics. Sure, of course. And thanks for having me on the podcast today. So by way of background, I've got about 20 years of experience in the equity derivative space. I am an author of Quantitative Trading Strategies, which was published about 15 years ago, a text on, on systematic trading strategies. And really my background, I would probably best describe as a crossover of managing equity derivatives risk and thinking about markets from a systematic point of view, really focusing on merging the real world and the risk neutral analysis to construct positive edge trading strategies. So you published that book 15 years ago. That is astonishing. It feels like a long time ago. Exactly. It's fun to go back and see the progression of the ideas from them to now. And many are actually still at the core beliefs of how I look at the systematic side, and some have dated themselves a little bit, as is the case, and, and we'll get into that into the discussion today. 
Well, I think it's worthwhile pulling on that a little bit. So what would you say are some of the concepts that you were discussing in your book 15 years ago that have stood the test of time? And what are some that you think, looking back, you have revised your views on pretty substantially? Sure. So I think the constant is approaching the markets from a systematic point of view. For myself, a lot of discretion, while maybe around the edges is okay, being a full discretionary-based trader, it just doesn't work for me. I need a framework that is quite systematic in its format and in its basis. And that has not changed in, in my philosophy over those 15 years since publishing the book. Also being honest with yourself, what works and to what extent does something work? And if it doesn't, that's fine. Move on. Don't try to curve fit something. Don't try to over-optimize a backtest or a simulation just to get a positive result to pat yourself on the back and say, yeah, this is great. Because guess what? You're just going to be disappointed out of sample when you apply it to real world. So that, I think, the philosophy has stayed the same. The methods, I would say, where I looked at, let's call it momentum from 20 or 30 different ways, whether it's you know channel breakouts, moving average crossovers, volatility breakouts, they lead to more or less a correlated result. And so I would say the exact methodologies and pointing what is the exact time series momentum signal that's going to be so much better than everything else, I've relaxed that a little bit and instead are looking, and again, we'll get into this, over more diversifying strategies. I've got my trend, great. What else can I add to it and move forward instead of just pinpointing on the exact trend signal that I think is the absolute best? Yeah, we tend to describe that as a view to trying to be generally correct while avoiding the risk of being specifically wrong, right? And I think that's been a real evolution in our thinking as well. I'm curious about how systematic managers come to become systematic thinkers. You know, like what is it about their life experience that led them to having strong confidence in systematic methods over discretionary approaches. What led you to that? So for me, and now we're going to go even further back than the 15 years ago of my book, I was kind of a math kid growing up. I was good with numbers. It was something I liked. I truly enjoyed. My father, when I was 12 years old, probably gave me a book of something called Technical Analysis of Stock Trends by Edwards and McGee, considered the Bible of discretionary technical analysis, which I really enjoyed. And even as a 12, 13-year-old, ate it up. And then over time, I discovered, even as a 15-year-old, trading strategies, systematic trading strategies. I remember I got something in the mail on, on a bond system and follow these rules and it makes a lot of money and awesome. And then we're all millionaires and everything's fine. And so I followed that and became really interested. And when I was I would say 16 years old, I developed a trading system. I'll call that with air quotes because it was a very simple, you know, range-based system. You know, look over the past 10, 14 days, if we're in the lowest 20%, we're buying. If we're in the upper 80%, we're buying. And this is before my experience with more heavy-duty back testers, if you will, on the software side. But I did paper trade it for a month or probably even two months even and eight in a row trades. Tons of money. It was great. And oh wow. Yeah, no. Eight in a row. <laughs> Just over two imagine months. the lesson that you're learning, the reinforcement. You get, you know, trade after trade goes right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I literally I did what you know a lot of people do. Well, if, if this success continues, my goodness, in three years, I'm gonna be richer than Bill Gates. My parents, who were just incredibly supportive of my endeavors, we opened up a futures trading account and I was gonna trade the 30-year future. 
put in my first trade, followed the rules, and immediately dropped money. And I panicked. And I said, oh my goodness, what happened? You know, after eight in a row, how could I lose? I thought I had figured it all out. And that failure, if you will, was really a great reflection of, okay, wait a minute. I've got to think about how to do this better. What can I do to have even more confidence than two months of a back test? And, you know, I went to college, went to the University of Pennsylvania in a finance program, which was very strong and very academic. And so between the academic nature of finance and my practical nature, again, even in college, started to really get interested in systematic trading. And at that point, you had more public software for backtesting and started to do data acquisition and further backtests of, you know, five years, 10 years, which compared to what I was doing in high school was a giant leap on the analysis side. It kind of continued from there. I was always interested. It just kind of progressed. I sort of realized the merits of systematic thinking. It took me kind of three major failures of discretionary trading for me to at least open my mind to the merits of systematic thinking. And then the work of Philip Tetlock and to perhaps a lesser extent, Nassim Taleb with his sort of narrative fallacy and some of the concepts around that. But especially Philip Tetlock's expert political judgment was just an incredible revelation for me. And it arrived at the right time and the evolution of my thinking. And I think you either have had an experience or have had a series of experiences that just make systematic thinking the only reasonable way to approach this complex domain, or you are awaiting the point at which <laughs> right, you yes. have an experience that leads to that conclusion, right? There's really only two states of, of being in my view. So there's a lot to unpack actually in some of the experiences that you just pointed out. One of them is just the idea of the robustness of a trading strategy, right? So you've got a new paper out. It's called Preferred Portfolios. We've already sort of dug into some of your initial thrusts regarding the importance of quantitative methods or just leaning into quantitative methods in general. But then you start to talk about this idea of temporal validity. And I wonder if you can just describe what you mean by that and maybe tell me if my intuition's right that it connects to just in general, the idea of robustness. Yes, absolutely does. Yeah, temporal validity was a concept and it's really from the social sciences from psychology. And I only recently stumbled upon in some of my readings two, three years ago, it caught my attention, particularly from a systematic trading point of view and the failures and, and successes that we're all going to have and the somewhat randomness of, of what we have. Data is very noisy. The signal that we can extract from it is not very large compared to the noise in the background. And so while we can create and best craft our, our strategies and our portfolios based on what's happened in the past, and we are, you know, being systematic traders, expecting many of those tendencies to continue, but we have to know that the future is going to be bumpier. It's going to be noisier in the future than it was in the past. And so the idea of temporal validity caught my attention as an ability to do a study and have a result that not only stands up in, in that moment of time that you're performing that study, but as small characteristics change in the sort of microcosm of, of the data or the background of whatever you're studying. And again, whether this is finance, psychology, medicine, how robust are the things that you're finding 
And will they be robust subject to small changes over time that are going to happen? Markets change, markets evolve, participants come in, they trade differently, they change the way signals are going to behave to their trading. And while we've got core beliefs and core strategies that we expect to continue, they're not going to continue exactly as we expect. And we want to build portfolios of strategies that even though the future will be a little bit different, it should still hold up relative to what we've seen in the past, our results. Again, there's two or three things in there that I want to pull on. So one of the dimensions of this idea of temporal validity is that a strategy will persist through time. It's consistent in time and it is likely to persist in the future out of sample, right? So there's this idea of how do we evaluate whether a strategy is still relevant out of sample? I don't know if you have anything new or interesting to say on that. For us, that falls into the category of a hard problem. Over certainly four strategies that are traded at frequencies that most of us are familiar with, right? At sort of anything at or greater than a daily trading horizon, the evaluation of out-of-sample performance relative to in-sample performance just due to sample size, I think, is a hard problem, right? So I'll throw that over to you. I wonder if you have anything to say on that. Sure. And actually, the first topic of the portfolios piece that I published is that you should expect your signal to decrease over time. And the stronger it is, the better that you see it, whether you found something that's no one else, you're able to access a market in a way that no one else has. People are smart. There's a lot of really smart people looking for edge. And sooner or later, they're going to start to dig into it. And it likely won't decay to zero overnight. But the stronger it is, the faster it's going to decay. And that doesn't mean that everything is going to go to zero eventually. I mean, I think because we're competitive as a group of people in finance looking for these edges, eventually once some of these signals have degraded, money starts to leave it. They start to chase the hot idea again. And so there is kind of some baseline of, of where strategies ultimately trough, if you will. But if you found something that's very effective, you need to monetize it. You need to trade it. You need to take advantage of it and expect that over time, that signal is going to degrade. Now, to your point, how do you exactly measure that and what's the expectation? That's very tricky. And I have yet to find something perfect to describe mechanically that expected deterioration of edge. But you got to figure it's out there. Yeah, or even just measure it. It's one thing you've got a neat chart in your paper that sort of, I think, plots a theoretical decay function, yeah. right? It's sort yes, of like a theoretical exactly. alpha decay function. And so a strategy starts out being unheard of. It probably has limited capacity. If you really want to preserve that really strong edge, it leaks out, it becomes known, papers get published. It sort of enters the belly of the curve. It's still relatively attractive. It enters the domain of your typical two and 20 hedge fund. They're seeking both performance and capacity and eventually it enters the mainstream, the sort of zeitgeist, the Overton window, and it migrates into this kind of smart beta commoditized version. It's asymptotic to whatever that baseline edge might look like, right? I think that that's a reasonable framework to think about the evolution of trading edges over time. It's an endless curiosity for us as to how to think about evaluating. I mean, one of the things that you identified in your paper, which we've spent a lot of time on, is that the marginal benefit of diversification, it decays fairly rapidly. So you keep adding new strategies, but every new strategy that you add has diminishing marginal utility. 
And so if that's true, then there comes a point relatively quickly, actually, where it pays very substantially to be able to identify which strategies are likely to outperform others and just sort of remove the ones or substantially de-emphasize the ones that you think are likely to have decayed to a meaningful degree and then emphasize the ones that obviously you've got greater confidence in. And to be able to wrap some kind of quantitative framework around that to measure that is, I think, an ongoing question. If you don't have a solution to it, then I'm not surprised because I, I don't think I've encountered anyone with a holy grail on that. No, and that was a very eye-opening result of mine. And when I write these papers, a lot of it is the conclusions I found, which very often are, are eye-opening for me, and I, I just like to share because, frankly, I get back so much from people like yourself and others. But the one to me was diversification and the fact that it's the only free lunch that's out there and absolutely true. But the benefits, and there are some remarkable graphs in there, decay very, very quickly, particularly when the one example is you've got strategies that each have a correlation with each other of 0.5. By the time you get to seven or eight, you've pretty much hit that asymptote of how quickly or what extra benefits you're going to get. And if you're going from seven to eight to 50 strategies, you're probably better off spending your time either taking those top 10 strategies and making them better. Or looking for something not correlated, as opposed to going to your 10th and 20th and 30th strategy with very high correlation among each other. It just doesn't add up. It's not worth it. And I think the paper brings it up as a theoretical idea from if you are a systematic manager and you need the new research for the new strategies, where do you want to spend your time? You need to think about what you've got and what the value add is going forward of edge or alpha versus correlation to your existing portfolio suite. The other side of that, of course, is that if you can legitimately find strategies that are uncorrelated, so have a zero correlation, then that point of diminishing marginal utility is surprisingly far out in terms of the number of strategies that are still materially accretive, right? You can get into the sort of 20, 30, 40 strategies and, you know, where that marginal extra strategy is still may add, you know, a creative sharp ratio even at the margin. So, but the difference between zero and 0.1 is way, average correlation is way larger than people might imagine intuitively, right? Yes. And again, anyone who says I've got 50 strategies that have absolutely no correlation to each other, I'd be curious how that happened or <laughs> what their experience was the past three to four months. Because again, in, in normal times, maybe, but correlated factors, correlated risk among assets that look very different can pop up and unfortunately at the worst time. Yeah, it's hard to really dig into the conditional correlations of all of these strategies as well, right? So they may look uncorrelated on average, but just as a really accessible example, stocks and treasury bonds, right? So on average, over the very long term, they've had a correlation of zero, but they go through multi-decade periods where they have a negative correlation and then another multi-decade period where they have positive correlation. So you need to be aware of the correlation dynamics at each point in time in order to be able to fully take advantage. So it requires a dynamic approach to that in order to maximize the diversification. So we sort of discussed one dimension of that idea of intertemporal validity, but you did sort of bring up another, which is kind of not so much intertemporal, where temporal refers to time, but is still a dimension of robustness, which is sort of perturbing the specification of the strategy, right? So a strategy needs to work in different 
economic environments or at different points in time and be fairly persistent. But it also needs to be resilient to small or even sort of moderate changes in how the strategies are specified, right? The parameterizations of them. So would you include that it's, it's, it's your idea of intertemporal validity or is that something different? Yeah, no, absolutely. And part of, I would say, the culmination of my research or philosophy was to better classify strategies than just call it stocks, bonds, and alts. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you kind of get the idea. And the idea there being is as these alternative risk premiums pop up and, and more and more inter-asset class strategies come to life, we can't just say they're long, short, they're flat. Let's just put them in a bucket altogether. I would say the probably the best example of that is even managed futures and trend followers, which had such a great run in the great financial crisis of 08 and 09 and a great diversifier of not only protecting capital when equity and risk assets were very strongly going the other way, but actually making a fair amount of money. So fast forward through 2010 and and the backward hindsight capital mirror, more and more allocation goes into these products, into the trend following products with the expectation that if something happens to risky assets, they will perform very, very well, not just uncorrelated, but anti-correlated, if you will. And we get to coming a little closer to the here and now, February 2018 in Balmageddon and and the very sharp sell-off in the S&P 500 in equities, and trend followers, generally speaking, didn't quite perform. The answer is they probably shouldn't have. You had a market that was nearish highs, you know, long exposure as they should be from a momentum time series momentum basis. And, you know, while they didn't get crushed, they didn't provide the diversification value that they did in 2008, 2009. March 2020, the, kind of the, the same thing. You had such a strong and swift speed of the sell-off that it took time for signals to flip. My point in all this is that's not a failure of the strategy. The strategy has variability in its, its beta, if you will, to the S&P or to risky assets. Momentum, long-short momentum is another one where depending on the characteristics of of equity markets, long and low volatile versus bare and very volatile, the characteristics, depending on the portfolio construction, obviously, but generally speaking, are variable. You can't expect it to be, by definition, a negative beta crisis alpha product. It depends. You just don't know. And so when I started to classify the strategies, I determined and created four strategies, four monikers for bucketing everything. One is a booster, so something that performs well when equity and risky assets, risk on, is working. A defender, which goes the other way, which performs when equity markets and and we have sort of these risk-off periods. And then you had the non-correlated strategies to the S&P. And those were a little bit trickier because, again, on one hand, you've got time series momentum, which depending on where we are in regimes, they could act risk on, they could act risk off. It will depend on where their signals are versus, say, gold or a long short value strategy, which typically is a little bit more, a little closer to home in terms of correlations always being near zero. And so I split the lowly correlated strategies into two monikers, one being a selector. So something that selects its beta, if you will, over time based on the strategy. So managed futures, trend followers fell into that. Long short equity factor momentum fell into that. And then you've also got what I call the true diversifiers, things like gold, equity value, equity quality from the factor side. And again, it was a nice idea to 
classify every single strategy, but when you get into the paper, there, there's a graph that I think is the proof in the pudding. This is the correlation versus the standard deviation or dispersion. Yeah, exactly. I really like that framework. Yeah. Yeah. Say more about that. That's the framework for deciding which bucket something falls into, a strategy falls into. But then right below that, we look at the average correlation over time, depending on the buckets. And what you find is that the boosters are very consistently correlated to the S&P 500. So call it correlations of 0.6, 0.8. They don't really move. Lars, why don't you try and go ahead and share your screen on that? I think it would be useful to, and if you're struggling with it, I can share it. Yeah, actually, if you want to try to give it a sure, shot, that would yeah, be best. It. While you're doing that, I'll go through it. But the idea is when you, when you actually looked at the correlations over time, not over the full sample, but a rolling window of one year, they behave as you would expect. And that to me gave me a lot of comfort that hmm, this is probably the right way to classify the strategies. Yeah, agreed. This is the chart that you're referring to, right, Lars? So maybe you can kind of walk through how to interpret that chart. Sure, exactly. So this is a time period from 2008 to 2019. I picked, I believe, 19 either asset classes or strategies, nothing particularly selective about them, just a representative population of, of things that are, are being traded in the mainstream these days. And I took the weekly returns of each, each return stream and calculated a 52-week rolling correlation between each of those assets and the S&P 500. I, I pick S&P 500 just as... Equity beta or risk yeah, on Yeah, equity proxy. beta. Yeah. Exactly. Nothing wonderful about the S&P versus like in MSCIL world. That was just the proxy I picked. And so we've got the 52-week rolling correlations for each strategy or each asset class. So, And that's on the y-axis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So from this, I take the average of that correlation over the 10-year period. And that gives us essentially the average beta correlation. You know, is it risk on? Is it risk off? And if you look at the top, you will see assets up there that you would expect. International equities, a short volatility strategy. High yield and REITs, which, you know, again, one of those that when things are calm may not look very equity, but when we hit periods of stress, those assets do become very equity-like. On the other side, the assets and strategies that had negative correlation to the S&P 500, not really surprising, a long volatility strategy, an equity low volatility, which was actually a, a dollar neutral, long low beta, short high beta. So ex-ante by construction, short beta. So no surprise there. And then long rates, which was a longer dated U.S. Treasury total return series. So those with the average correlation, the S&P 500 below negative 0.3, defenders. Those with average correlation to the S&P above 0.3, boosters. So you're left with the stuff in the middle. And this is what we were talking about before. They're not zero correlation to the S&P, but they're also not terribly, terribly high. And so the classification system was based on the x-axis, which is the volatility of the correlation, meaning if something never moves with the S&P, not only is, is the average correlation over time very low, but the standard deviation of that correlation will be low too. Let's say you've got a different strategy that picks a long or short on the S&P Flip of coin, you, you name what it is, and it does it for 10 weeks in a row, and then it flips a coin and goes the other way. Well, that average correlation over time, just because sometimes it's long, sometimes it's short, is going to be near zero. 
at any point in time, it's correlation one or correlation negative one. So again, it randomly flips a coin. It says I'm long the S&P or I'm short S&P, and it does it roughly equal amounts of time over the period. Your average correlation is in fact going to be zero, but at any point in time, your correlation is going to be plus one or minus one. And so when you look at that variability of correlation over time, it is going to move in, in a rolling 52-week time series point of view. And so the split between what I call diversifiers and what I call selectors was based on the consistency of that correlation. So for the assets that weren't correlated very much to the S&P over time and intra-periods didn't show much variability, I call those diversifiers. For the other assets, which over the average don't show much correlation to the S&P, but have very high variability of sometimes they're correlated and sometimes they're very much anti-correlated, those I considered selectors and those have a higher standard deviation of the correlation there. And so that's the framework for creating each of the four classifications of the structures. I think this chart really demonstrates the merit of that framework. It just shows that the different categories exhibit the exact characteristic that you are going for when you divide it using this framework of average correlation versus standard deviation correlation. So maybe just spend a quick minute going through this just to illustrate it. Sure. And this is the proof of the pudding. So the sort of navy blue line that's on top is the average correlation of the strategies that were considered boosters in the previous graph. And they are positive and they are consistently positive. They are risk on and, and that's just what they are. The very, very light blue line at the bottom is the average correlation of the three defenders, that being rates, the equity, low volatility and the long volatility strategy. They are negative and they are negative throughout. They don't really move. These are risk-off assets. Where the interesting results lie are the purple line, which are the selectors, which are the ones where that variability moves. It gets very high and it gets very negative. You can see the average of that purple line over time is kind of near zero. But One thing that really stood out to me just as parenthetically is just how regular the periodicity of that yeah, purple yeah, line that is. Does, <laughs> it does feel sine wave-ish, isn't it? It That's could very be interesting. just the time period, but that is astonishingly regular. Sure, but you see the variability of, of the purple line, of the selectors. At any point in time, you throw a dart at this graph, they may very well be risk on or they may very well be risk off. Whereas that middle line, that sort of light blue line is the average correlation of the diversifiers. It doesn't move. It doesn't budge that much. 0.2. It's very consistent. You throw a dart there, you kind of know where you're going to get. Yeah. No, I think that's great. So one of the things that I think you mentioned, but you didn't sort of drill in, it didn't seem to be a primary theme of the paper, but you did mention it a couple of times, this idea that because we should acknowledge that every strategy has some kind of decay function over time as more investors become aware of it and build models to harvest that or arbitrage it away, that a major source of value that is often not recognized in the quant community, or rather with investors investing in quant strategies, is the role of the innovative process. You need to be constantly scouring the investment universe and every other conceivable source for ideas about other edges that you may be able to identify, either edges that have always existed, but that hadn't been identified yet, or edges that are new because of new regulations or new structural interventions in markets, but the need to constantly innovate, drive creativity, and 
you know, dispose with the old or de-emphasize with the old and bring in the new. So maybe speak about how big a role that should play in what investors pay quantitative managers for. I think it's huge. And it's huge in quantitative management of assets. It's huge in real life, whether you're running a business. You know, if you are successfully wild at what you do, you're going to have people chasing you, copying what you do, trying to take away your, your market share, your revenue, whatever it is. It's just the nature of the world is that things are going to be harder tomorrow than they are today. And if instead of fretting over it, you just kind of realize it like, okay, I got to figure something out next it becomes a little bit less daunting because, again, you don't have to reinvent your process overnight. This is where I really think it's key. It's incremental steps to stay just a little bit ahead of where you were yesterday. And so I think that's incredibly important. And if you're not innovating and if you're not willing you know, to go out a little bit on the, on the risk structure of, of the strategies you're looking at and, and you're, you're left with you know, what was in the mainstream 10 years ago, you're in trouble. I really do believe that. You've just got to innovate on the research side. And by the way, we say research, maybe it's portfolio construction. Maybe it's you know thinking about the buckets. Maybe the strategies are fine, but there's a better way to put them together. Portfolio craftsmanship, you know, kind of in your words. The innovation part, the research part, the thinking about how can we do this better tomorrow than today is just incredibly important. Okay. Well, I'm going to just continue on and then you can answer a question while I try to rectify my technical issues at my end. But I did want to come full circle and just sort of say, you know, is there a general practical takeaway for investors on some concrete steps that they could take with their current portfolios to make use of the framework that you have outlined in this preferred portfolios paper before we we move on to your CTA replication idea? Sure. I think one of the interesting things about the preferred portfolio paper is that well, if you're running a multi-strategy hedge fund, it's it's probably the wheelhouse. But the concepts are important for anyone. If you're, you know, an individual investor and thinking about how does my portfolio fit together? Okay, I, I've got bonds. I think those are a defender. I've got an equity allocation. I think that's a booster. Do I have any gold? Do I want to have gold? Do I have alternative strategies? And how are those alternative strategies going to behave in a time of not only market peril, which we probably have a good window into given what we've gone through in 2020, but how are they going to perform if we see, you know, irrationality come and and bubbles happen on the upside? Because all those things can very much happen. And you've just got to think, how do the individual pieces of your portfolio fit together in different market climates and in some extremes? I, I think that's probably the one thing we don't do enough is no one thought you know, market down 30% in a, in a month and a half was, was probably reasonable at the beginning of this year, but it is. And it happened. We have to deal with it and, and make adjustments where they make sense and, and continue with taking risk. I like that. I mean, is there a clear mapping between the preferred portfolio idea and a more sort of generalized risk parity framework? You know, do you, do you see a direct mapping there or are there major distinguishing features between the two that you would want to highlight? I mean, I see this sort of idea of the boosters, defenders kind of framework as being an overlay on the general idea of risk parity, I think, and then classifying them using this sort of average correlation versus standard deviation correlation idea. I really like that. Do you agree that there's a lot of parallels or overlap there? 
Essentially, I've never thought of that, but you, you've got a point. You know, when you consider the the all weather portfolios that managers have put together that are risk parity ish or directly risk parity, it it is pretty similar. Yes, certainly from a high level of how is an asset going to perform in different and certainly this is macro env- environments, and then making sure we've got enough of all those buckets. And obviously, the million dollar question is how much of each bucket to perform under all scenarios to maximize our ending wealth, if you will. But yeah, there is a fair amount of overlap there. Well, I think just sort of theoretically, and just coming back to your idea of alpha decay, if we sort of acknowledge that the strategies are all decaying to some sort of asymptotic long-term average, then I guess that would be a long-term average sharp ratio. And so to the extent that you're identifying for risk parity markets where in general investors have the perception of of a reasonably good grasp of the population distribution of the sharp ratio for the major asset classes, as an example, you're layering on relatively well-known factor premia for which there's already a fair amount of capital that is in the market harvesting those premia. And so they've driven the expected sharp ratio of those premia closer to that asymptotic minimum so then you sort of get into this idea, they all have approximately the same expected sharp ratio. And then if you've got a good grasp of how they fit together, either structurally or statistically, then that drives towards this risk parity concept where all of the major sources of return have the same expected sharp ratio. And so you're just trying to maximize the number of bets between those or the expected diversification between those different sources, right? So I like how those pieces fit together. And that may be a reason why your preferred portfolio framework really resonates with me because it does sort of map onto relatively well this this idea that we leaned into pretty heavily and, and that I've come to really embrace over the last 10 or 12 years. So I think that's great. All right. Well, I want to move on to the CTA replication paper because I think this is really neat. And We spent quite a lot of time with an intern. I think it might've been last summer. And we were doing, no, it was two summers ago. We were doing some work on just kind of investigating machine learning concepts. And we have this idea of deriving the optimal window shape for trends and that sort of thing. And so we thought CTA replication was a good case study for this concept. So I was really intrigued. You you mentioned that you're writing this and I was really keen to dig into it. So let's do that. And so the first thing that you mentioned is that this is a hot, the hot topic. There's a lot of research shops, especially sort of sell side research shops that are publishing constantly the CTA positioning. And a lot of investors use this, especially macro investors use this, the relative positioning CTAs, some of the cot reports, that sort of stuff to feed into their looser models on, you know, how to position in markets. So why is this a thing? Why are investors in general interested in this? I think in, there's a, a number of them, a number of strategies out there that have grown in assets so much so relative to the rest of the market that their, their trading can actually be an influence on what's going on. And the three that I think get the most 
press the most market and analysis on are, are systematic option sellers. So fall premium harvesting, variance risk premium harvesting, whether it's via variance or short dated optionality selling. And essentially that leads its way into market makers who run you know equity derivatives desks and they're buying low and selling high. And, and depending on the supply of, of the options out there, there's either a lot to buy on the way down and sell on the way up, or it can actually go the other way. So that that's one topic. Volatility target funds, particularly the ones embedded in variable annuities, where I've got a leveraged number to the S&P that, that's moving based on realized volatility. And as volatility goes up, they delever. As volatility goes down, they relever back up. That's the second one. And then the third one are, are the trend following CTAs and specifically. And very often, you'll see the research shops have this combination of all three of these together and their take on, on what's out there now how is it affecting markets? How much is long? How much needs to be purchased on a 1% decline? It's relevant. I think that the sizes of these flows are big enough that if I'm not deep into the strategies behind them, I probably want to know. So I get the reason why. And I actually think it's probably some value add to have it out there and for the research. I just think it needs to be done correctly is what's my point. Yeah, no, and I agree. And so the way people may trade around this information is markets peak, for example, when there's no one left to buy, right? So when you know the CTA is often perceived, I think, by macro traders as a marginal buyer, and it's a fairly predictable marginal buyer if you've got the right tools to predict. And if you can tell when CTAs as an important marginal active trader in markets are maximally positioned. In other words, there's no more dollars from CTAs going in a particular direction, right into a specific beta or market sector, et cetera. That can be an indicator that we may be near a shorter term peak. So how do these research shops typically model CTA positioning and what are some of the issues that you found with their models? Sure. So my biggest issue is Many of them do it through a rolling window of a very vanilla linear regression, meaning I've got a benchmark and in my paper, I use the SG trend index, which follows a number of, of the larger trend following CTAs and follows their returns. So they use, you know, that is their independent variable. They use the S&P as their, their dependent variable, figure out the, the beta of one to the other over time, use a rolling window of call it three months, six months, one month, whatever it is and just kind of blindly use the outputs of the regression for, okay, here's where the exposure is at the moment. Okay, yeah. And so one of the major challenges, of course, is that CTA positioning definitionally changes through time, right? It's non-stationary and it's a non-trivial question of how to create linear regression models where the betas change through time. And so I guess this is what we identify as a major challenge in these models. And I think your analysis, and we'll dig into a little bit later, the extent to which this is true, but your analysis shows that they often get it quite wrong at the wrong times. And therefore, these reports that use these methods are not of much practical use. Yeah. And again, I don't mean to criticize factor models in general. And for certain investment managers where the reporting periods are sparse or we don't really know much about the underlying process, it may be the best you can do, albeit with lag. And so if that's the case, it may be a valid way to measure exposures, but you've 
do need to be cognizant of the lag you're going to have as positions can flip long, short, very quickly. And if you're running a model, you know, looking at the past returns over, let's call it 20 weeks, you may need another 10 weeks or 15 weeks before you really pick up that change. Yeah, exactly. There's a few firms out there. I know Markov Process has a method that they use to try to map the non-stationary betas to different funds. And there's, so that's interesting. But I have to say that I am much more aligned with the way that you've approached it. I think this is certainly closer to how we approach the problem as well. So why don't you go ahead and take us through it? Sure. So the funny thing is the history behind this is after seeing, you know, some of the research on this and, and saying, all right, we know how CTAs trade in general. Do I know how any specific one trades? No. But in aggregate, we know they're a buyer of strength. They're a seller of weakness. They are likely going to ensemble over a number of periods in terms of their trend speeds. They're likely to ensemble across a number of markets. And knowing that, can we do a little bit better in terms of not fitting their returns, but replicating them? Meaning, I'm a CTA. How would I do this? How do I think I would set up my signals? And again, I'm not trying to maximize the performance. I'm trying to maximize the replication to the CTA benchmarks. I want to do my best to predict how they're going to trade and how their returns are going to trade. And so I took, literally, as I mentioned, this was a two-hour just fun you know, research project. And I started with a couple of very simple momentum models, volatility to adjusting each market. I picked by definition to keep things very tight. I only picked 16 markets. So four specific markets across four asset classes, that being equities, interest rates, foreign exchange, and commodities. I then applied sort of what I guess we would call a naive risk parity. So inverse volatility weighted signals to each of the markets. I did include a trend intensity level with a little bit of a parameter. And, and where I mean by that was if a momentum turned from negative to positive, I used a level of positioning that was based on the intensity, meaning that I flipped from zero to 0 0.0001, didn't necessarily create that much of a position. A flip from zero to positive one in a sort of normalized space created a bigger position. And, and as that momentum increased, the position would, would get bigger. And I put all this together, came up with the results of what I thought my replication return stream would look like. I compared it against the SG trend index and I got a correlation that was way higher than I thought was possible. So I scrapped it. I said, all right, hold on. I must've done something wrong. Let me do it all again from scratch. <laughs> went through it again, same result. Okay. So now this went from just a fun project to let's put a little bit more rigor in this. Let's think about how we can make sure that I'm not just getting lucky. Let's see if we can figure out which momentum lookbacks these CTAs are, are most using. And then from there, create a robust replication model. So essentially, just sort of going through your paper, right? You've got five momentum lookbacks. You've got how many caps did you test? Did you just stick five different caps? Five different caps. And then I think of that for, for those as almost like a Z score. Yeah. So I was going to dig in. So the Z score of, is it just the standardized returns? So in other words, the Z-score of the Sharpe ratio? Yeah. Okay, perfect. And so there's five different caps, which presumably range between zero and three or something. Yep, zero and two. In increments, yep. zero and two. And five different look-back parameters for the estimation of volatility. Mm -hmm. So really what you did, if I understand, is you created 
125 different strategies, right? Just like Correct. potential yep. trend following strategies on those markets based on every combination of those three dimensions of parameterization with five parameters each, right? And then you found the combination that had the greatest explanatory power on the SG trend index. Yeah, although what I first wanted to figure out is of those three parameters, if you will, the look back, the position cap, the sort of Z-score position cap and the volatility, which of those were the most important? And so the, the first and, and probably the most interesting graph is taking the R-squareds, so the coefficient of determinations between my replication and the SG trend index and sorting them high to low and looking for breakpoints. And the first thing we see very easily is that, and again, using the lookbacks, there's a four-week, eight-week, 16-week, 32-week, and 52-week. The four-week lookback, a very, very super short-term one month, has very little predictive power. Not really a surprise. The eight-week, eh, a little bit better, but still pretty far away. The 16, 32, and 52 were certainly the next leg up. And while you know the 32-week had a little bit better predictive power than the 16 or 52 on average, they were more or less a plateau that were well above the four-week and the eight-week bookbacks. Again, we're talking about the momentum side. The position caps, not so important. The volatility lookbacks, not so important. Again, there were some peaks here and there that were a little bit preferable to others, but certainly far and away and, and not terribly surprising was that the length of the momentum look back was the most important factor of achieving high replication. So you did identify that the look back parameter was by far the most important or most explanatory variable in your model, right? Yes, for sure. And that being the 16 week, the 32 week and the 52 week. So an intermediate to longer term trend following system as you would expect. Yeah. One thing I was wondering is, because we know that, or rather our hypothesis, which we've tested at least a little bit, is that the parameterization of trend funds on average has changed over time, right? So how do we think about that in terms of updating your model or I guess, refitting it on an ongoing basis or on a rolling window yeah, or something like it's that. It's an interesting point. That is part of the reason I selected only five years of data is that if you went back over 10 years or 20 years where, where we've got the appropriate benchmarks, you're definitely going to have some not as good fits because the trend speed slowed down a little bit over the past 10 to 15 years, again, as, as I understand it, and as trend speed has been studied a little bit more in depth over the past five years or so. Yeah. So I can imagine a model where you are sort of running a rolling regression. So you'd sort of add an extra parameter here, which is a look back window on your model fit. So, you know, maybe you've got five different potential look back horizons on the model fit. So now you go from 125 to whatever, five times 125, I should know that. What is it, 625? 625 different models that you're testing now. And it's just like, you're adding that model fit. Horizon just to account for the degree to which changes over time. Sure. Change over time, I think is great. Yeah. So, okay. So walk us through these charts. Sure. So we went over the the top one on your screen now. That is just the R squared, if you will, from all the 125 models sorted from high to low. From those, I, I started to nail down and pick some specific parameters so that that bar chart on the bottom 
that is holding two of the parameters constant being a sort of normalized momentum score of one. Again, think of that as a Z-score and the volatility look back at 90 days. And, and you see, and, and I've, I've scaled the left-hand axis, the Y-axis from zero to one in all these so that they're like for like, you see a pretty big improvement as we go from four weeks to eight weeks to 16 weeks. And then we see the kind of plateau. It looks like 32 is a little bit better than 16 or 52, but again, not so terribly sharply that we can say for sure it is 32 weeks and not 16 or not 52. And we'll kind of come back to that in that later. And then if you've got a chance to scroll to the next page, again, holding two of the parameters constant, again, the 32 in the top graph, it's the 32 week look back is constant. The 90 day volatility look back is constant. And then we look at varying the normalized momentum cap. Hard to tell that there, there's any difference between there. Again, the, the peak is at around 1.0, but not so obvious. It's not particularly sensitive to that. No, yeah. it's no, it's not. And then the bottom, again, holding the look back for the momentum at 32 weeks, holding the cap at 1.0 and varying the volatility look back. Same thing. Not, not terribly sensitive, all things considered. It's pretty remarkable that 0.01 still continues like as a, as a maximum threshold. Right still continues to give you signal. I guess if you're normalizing all signals to 0.01, then they end up being somewhat relative. So maybe the magnitude doesn't matter as part of the regression. I need to sort of think through that, but I do think that that is interesting. And then obviously the volatility estimation window also has very little sensitivity. So I think that's that's actually kind of interesting. Did you have any hypothesis going in on into this on what you'd expect the model to say? So the lookbacks, kind of as we expected, I mean, certainly I didn't expect to see much on a four week. And I guess I, I am more surprised that there was not a wider variability in the normalized momentum or the volatility lookbacks. I guess the peak is not terribly surprising. I just thought there would have been more differentiation as, because these are pretty, pretty sparsely, pretty widely varied parameters. And despite the wide variation in them, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of difference. That probably surprised me. Yeah, no, that is interesting. How do you expect investors can might make use of the this type of model? I mean, I know there's sort of the obvious, do a better job as a sell-side analyst of actually providing information about current CTA positioning, maybe. But then are there systematic ways that investors can incorporate these types of models or build models around this or that are informed by the results of these types of analyses? Yeah, I think it's tricky to take the outputs specifically. Here's the positioning of CTAs and what's going to happen next. Who knows if you can tell me the market, which way the market moves, I'll tell you which way they have to trade. I think for me, the more interesting point of view is, okay, if we have an idea of how to replicate these, what happens, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, you did, Adam, of when they hit their maximum exposures? What is the conditional return series look like for these CTA benchmarks when they hit their maximum, when they hit their minimum? Is there something to trade off of there? So that, that to me is kind of the next step of this analysis. The replication part, it, it's interesting, but I, I think the true value add is going to be looking at, okay, when now that we have a way to summarize how they're trading, what happens when they're at max long? What happens if they're at max short? And does that conditionally affect you know the returns of the models? And that to me is kind of the next step. Yeah, I can, I can see two or three different ways to incorporate this information, right? One of them is sort of a take a time series of the finite difference of the change in positioning over time. And does that contain information? Can you front run CTAs a little bit? 
because you have some forecast ability. There's a probability cone of where the, the signal will almost certainly be over the next day, five days, 10 days, et cetera. And so we can quasi forecast where CTE positioning, there's a potential cone of where that positioning will go. And then I think you could just sort of add these time series into as a feature into a machine learning model where CTA positioning may contain information that is informative about future returns either on its own or conditional on in combination with other features, right? So, I, you know, I think there's a few interesting directions that you could go, or just if you want to build a pure alpha type machine learning model, then you might want, you've got a better understanding of the underlying me- mechanics of the benchmark. So you know that institutions have a an allocation to this on average as a benchmark. They want alpha strategies that are uncorrelated to this. And therefore you're going to, by design, build strategies that are, are accretive, have marginal sharp to this strategy. You've got a better understanding of what CTA strategies are because of this type of model. So fantastic. Well, I mean, I think we covered a lot of ground. We managed to overcome some technical <laughs> difficulties, which hopefully we'll have been able to edit out for the most part through the production process. And I want to thank you for sharing some charts and tables and some really great papers to discuss. So where can investors or readers learn more about these ideas, find these papers? When are you going to publish or expect to publish the CTA paper? Yeah, sure. So the CTA paper should be up momentarily, hopefully by the time the podcast is up. I've created a website that's literally just a repository of papers and thoughts. I will be adding to it over time and it's www.satquant.com. So satquant.com and it's all there. Outstanding. All right, Lars. Well, it was great. I mean, there's there's 15 or 20 years of quantitative experience packed into this hour. I'm sure there's a number of other directions we could go. I'm glad we had a chance to talk about the stuff that you're currently working on. I think it's timely and important. And I would look forward to doing this again sometime. Oh, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate having me on the podcast. All right. Well, let's put a pin in that and let's do it again sometime. Thanks again. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.